Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps including Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and many others. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, and the Family Podcast Network. Podcast episodes also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback or guest suggestions to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Melody Dickerson, the Senior Vice President of Hospital Operations and Chief Nursing Officer at VHC Health in Arlington, Virginia. She joins us for a conversation about her work, trauma care, workplace wellness, and more. So welcome to the show, Melody. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Julian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. So just to get things rolling, we want to learn a bit more about you, Melody. We know that you're an experienced nurse leader who has worked at hospitals in Virginia, Texas, and North Carolina, where some of your work is focused on healthcare quality and safety improvement to benefit patients. More recently, the Washington Business Journal named you a woman who mean business honoree in relation to your work at VHC Health. Those are just a few details about your unique individual personal story. So if you would, Melody, just tell us a few essential things about you that you'd like our listeners to know? Uh, well, in addition to being a nurse, I really enjoy, um, you know, living in the Northern Virginia area. My kids have all benefited from um, rowing crew and doing some activities that just, I think, are unique uh, or more unique to this area. You know, my background took a non-traditional turn into nurse leadership when Earlier in my career, I really did a lot of work in process improvement, uh, working for the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare uh, as a Lean Six Sigma black belt running projects all over the country. I feel like that, you know, these experiences and, you know, being the daughter of a of a game warden from an early age, just really nurturing animals as a young <laughs> child have developed me into the leader in the role I'm in today. The daughter of a game warden. That is an interesting little factoid there. <laughs> We mentioned that you are Senior Vice President of Hospital Operations as well as Chief Nursing Officer for VHC Health, which is a 453-bed not-for-profit hospital located in Arlington, Virginia. You talked just a moment ago about some of your process improvement work, and you said about how that was a transition into leadership for you. Can you tell us about your role as a leader at the hospital and what your work and your role entails on a daily and ongoing basis? Yeah, so my role is really over all of the clinical areas of the hospital for the most part, inpatient and outpatient. I have the benefit of working with radiology and physical therapy and and a multitude of the service lines, CVOR and others. Uh, so that direct oversight, having a you know really close relationship with my dyad partner, Dr. Brian Stone, he is our chief medical officer. He has oversight over the, the main OR. I have main oversight over the CVOR. And, you know, really developing programs like the trauma program. You know, I came to VHC Health. I came into the chief nursing officer role and was really looking at the high level of care and services that we provide here and really scratched my head and asked the question, why? Why Why aren't we a trauma center? Because I'd only ever worked at trauma centers before. And so when we got a new um, chief medical officer in a couple of years later, I really pulled data from the state, worked very heavily with him to develop a, a performa for, you know, the development of a trauma program and really happy that we were able to partner and find a provider partner with GWMFA, George Washington Medical Faculty Associates, to bring the services here and, you know, launched it in January of 2020. 
obviously nothing that traumatic, pardon the pun, mm-hmm. uh, was happening that year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we got uh, off to a, a bit of a slow start because, you know, people weren't out and about. But, you know, now we're three years in and, you know, we see about 1,800 patients a year. And so it's really been fulfilling to look back and see this program grow and, and to see how it's benefited the organization, not just our patients, but just, I think, leveled up the care that's provided here. I think just being a trauma center and having that complexity uh, just really challenges the entire team to do better and to be better. You just were speaking about the trauma center, and that really was my next question. So let's drill down a little bit more on that. As you mentioned, that was launched within the past few years after you and others really asked those questions and looked at the data. For people who are unfamiliar with a a trauma center, it is a significant commitment and undertaking an investment of resources and staff to provide care to patients, specialized care to patients who are seriously injured, often in in catastrophic or very serious situations. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, about 1,800 patients treated a year, I believe in 2022, the number was 1,775. For people who are unfamiliar with trauma center operations, can you share some insight about that work? You already touched on this a little bit, but just drill down deeper into the work and, and the value of patients having access to trauma care when the unthinkable occurs. And then again, just about actually going through the process of getting that designation. Yeah, so I think the hardest part of becoming a trauma center is really having a certain base level of of care that's available 24 hours a day. You know, we had acute care surgeries and and the like come through. We actually had a number of trauma patients that would come here, but anyone that would be at a level where it would be considered a trauma activation, those patients were having to go to a hospital outside of our community. And so when you start the process of becoming a trauma center, it really is pulling together those key stakeholders within the organization. You know, the surgeons, the the cardiothoracic surgeons, because one day you're going to have a trauma patient that requires that service in addition to orthopedics and others. So really looking at what were we really good at. We had tremendous surgeons here for general surgery, but the thing that we were lacking was that trauma expertise. So getting board certified trauma surgeons onto the physician docket was was very important. Uh, but then when you really get to the processes, uh, really thinking about, you know, what do we need to have a trauma activation. And activation is that higher level of, of injury that it really is an all-hands-on-deck kind of moment. You know, when that happens, there's one room that we keep open just for that particular type of patient and then an entire team that comes in. So how do we activate that team so that everyone knows where to go and, and what's coming in so we can set up the room in preparation for that? It means getting staff so that you can go to the OR in an emergency any time of day or night within a very tight timeline. You know, the provider has to be there in less than 30 minutes that they can make that decision to go to the OR and, and that decision, you know, you have to have that whole team mobilized within minutes of that. We've added really because of the need for blood products for these patients is oftentimes something that, again, is just a critical need and and minutes really matter. We've had to add a um, blood refrigerator and that whole process that goes with that uh, in our emergency department. So we eliminate that time it would take someone to run to the blood bank on the other side of campus and, and get back with that precious product. We have it at the ready near the trauma bay. And physical therapy, I think, you know, one thing that we've done very well for many years is we have a great inpatient and outpatient physical therapy program. And so 
getting new equipment and, and technology so that we can take care of the traumatic brain injuries and other types of physical injuries that these trauma patients can get. It's a number of things that we've improved upon as we've taken this journey. Well, I know that it's a a benefit to the patients in Northern Virginia who have need of trauma services. And as you say, whether it's thinking through the type of specialists, the type of surgeons that are on staff and available and can be mobilized about having facilities, about having the blood refrigerator, I think perhaps people don't always think about all of the interconnected components, the resources, the staff, the technology, the equipment that goes into having this high level of care at the ready for patients who need it. So I appreciate you giving that rundown, Melody. We spoke a few moments ago about your work in patient quality and safety improvement. I know that you've also focused attention on workplace safety um, for healthcare staff. People listening to this may not be aware that workplace violence is a growing challenge in healthcare settings. In fact, healthcare workers face a greater risk of workplace violence than professionals in any other industry. In fact, it's federal data suggests five times higher healthcare workers are likely to face workplace violence than people in any other industry. I know that through the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association CNO Forum, you've worked with other nurse leaders across Virginia on collaborative efforts spanning the COVID-19 pandemic, which you mentioned earlier, to workplace violence and things like the Caring for Caregivers Task Force focused on the the emotional, physical, and mental wellness of frontline caregivers. I wonder if you can talk broadly about that collaboration and how that has contributed to you know, the betterment of the healthcare community and the hospital community generally, and then also about what you're seeing you know, more locally, more acutely in terms of you know, challenges that frontline providers and caregivers are experiencing, particularly in a post-COVID climate you know, where unfortunately we are seeing just this growing trend of workplace violence, whether it's inappropriate physical contact or even just verbal contact that's abusive and inappropriate. Yeah, so I think You know, one of the things I love about being in this role in the state of Virginia is the great work that's done by the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association. I think Abraham Segres, he does a really wonderful job of bringing individuals across the state together to focus on a problem. And workplace violence is certainly something that has been a really valuable collaboration. Through that work, we've been able to do a number of things one is just, you know, hearing what everyone's doing and, and learning from, from one another on that end. But at the state level, you know, we've done a number of public service announcements really trying to increase public's awareness of behavioral expectations are for people uh, when they come to visit or if they are a patient in the hospital and really trying to tell stories of Virginia nurses and healthcare providers that are real, raw stories about what have actually happened to them. And and one of the videos features a BHC health nurse who um, was was attacked by a patient uh, in our emergency department, physically attacked. Fortunately, he is doing well from that attack, but, you know, it was really eye-opening to us. And coming out of the pandemic, I don't don't know what what happened. I I know I share the same sentiments as, as really everyone in healthcare to say, you know, I'm not sure what happened. But civility and and violence is certainly uh, taken an up uptick. And so, as we look at that, it it is threats of violence, it is physical harm, and most often brought by the visitors or or the patients. So some uh, individuals are having mental health challenges, and that's understandable uh, when someone is mentally ill. 
but oftentimes it really is a behavioral issue. And so, you know, VHC has been working on this pre-pandemic even when we were able to help you know, Jim Cole really mm-hmm. took the lead on the state getting legislation passed that made it a, a crime to um, commit uh, violence against a healthcare worker. You know, now there's national legislation that through the work of the VHHA and uh, the VNA really looking at trying to increase that level of legislation up to the point where it's equal to uh, what violence against a airline attendant mm-hmm. Would warrant. So I think, you know, we continue to do that. You know, here at VHC, we've recently just done a really serious change in, in just limiting our, our entrances and uh, making sure that anyone who comes onto our campus is signing in. And so we, you know, have some idea who they are and where they're going on campus and that kind of thing. You know, I'm fortunate that, that we have to do that, but it's like that base level of security that I think really almost all hospitals now are are having to do as we try to address this issue and really working with our staff to do a better job of teaching them ways that they can have therapeutic communications and de-escalation techniques and really thinking carefully about, you know, how can we help ourselves communicate in a way that prevents things from escalating with patients or visitors alike. It is something that we'll continue to learn and adapt and address in the years to come. Absolutely, Melody. And as you said, this is an ongoing issue and therefore it's a work in progress. But as you point out, a lot of positive has come out of this challenging situation. And as you said, particularly in a post-COVID environment where we are seeing, unfortunately, people acting in a less civil way. But as you point out, uh, Mr. Jim Cole, the past leader of VHC Health, certainly was one of the folks really advocating vigorously for a change in state law, which was accomplished in 2019, which made initially it a crime to verbally threaten physical or bodily harm to a healthcare worker in an emergency setting. That law has since been changed over the years. Most recently, it was extended to all healthcare professionals, um, so not just in an emergency setting, but any healthcare professional in the performance of his or her duties. It is a crime to verbally threaten to harm them, and obviously anyone who commits assault, whether against a healthcare professional or person in any other profession, uh, that is obviously against the law. So there is ongoing work, and then as you mentioned, at the federal level, there is legislation that's been pending in Congress to strengthen those protections and increase penalties for people who would harm a healthcare worker. So a lot happening there. That was a serious discussion. To close things out, we want to make things a little bit more lighthearted here. It is a tradition on the podcast to ask our guests a pair of parting questions to keep things, and these are fun, a little quirky, to keep things interesting. We have a list of 10 mystery questions. So Melody, if you would, Give me two numbers between 1 and 10, then I'll ask you the corresponding questions. Uh, Let's do 7 and 9. Okay. 7. If you could choose any one superpower to have or any one skill to instantly master, what would it be and why? I would love to have an invisibility cloak. (laughs) I think it would be quite interesting. (laughs) To be a fly on the wall. To be a fly on the wall, yes, and lots of different places. I can I can see where I, I would only use those powers for good, of course. But, of course, of uh, course. But that would be <laughs> the, uh, the superpower I would like to have. Okay. And then number nine, this is actually a slightly similar question, but not identical. If you were miraculously granted one wish, what would you wish for? You know, I would probably want to be a billionaire. And, you know, 
I would love to be able to have the financial wherewithal to really follow my passion, which is certainly healthcare, but to be able to, you know, use those dollars to fund innovation and just be able to listen to some of the best minds in healthcare and pick their brain and be able to invest in things that I truly think could help solve some of the, I think, pressing issues in, in healthcare, right? Where all, you know, the workforce challenges, like there's so many things with artificial intelligence and innovations that are happening right now. I think it would be a lot of fun to just be able to focus on and trying to help in a broader sense than what I can do you know, on my own or at one facility. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard that song, I Want to Be a Billionaire? That sounds like that's you. I have. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad bad. Buy all of the things I never had Buy everything. (laughs) I want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine Smiling next to Oprah and the Queen What up, Oprah? Uh, well, something to, something to hope for. Well, Melody, yep. I want to thank you again for spending a few minutes with us and for sharing your insights and expertise. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. We want to once again thank our guest, Melody Dickerson of VHC Health, for joining us today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.